This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Normally, uh, I'd ask, who do we have on the pod today? But uh... We have a very, very <laughs> special person uh, called Maxwell Vogue. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm on the 3D Pod. <laughs> <laughs> So we thought it would be good because we like um we we wanted I wanted to talk more about like your whole three D pen thing. How do you invent a product and how do you bring it to market and how do you do this? We talked a bit a long long time ago about the Kickstarter, so we don't really talk much about the Kickstarter. But just how do you go from having an idea to it being a product, and then how do you go from that to being a company? And I thought it'd be fun to explore that with uh, with you. Yeah, no, I'm happy to explore that. So so, so first off. First off, you 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 were already kind of an inventor before. You were an inventor, kind of, right? You were you had been making toys and stuff for other people, or in combination with other people for a long time. So it was like you kind of got practice in this before you did it, like as a, as a for yourself, right? I so I was hired, um, gosh, in the early two thousand two thousand five two thousand six to be part of the R and D team for a toy company called Wowie, um, or Wowie Robotics, and Wowie's goal was to bring home robots uh into the house if you will um so they hired like 15 or 20 people to come into their hong kong office um and at the same time that we were trying to make really sophisticated cool robots they're like oh you also need to make toys whilst you're doing that to pay the bills Mm -hmm. um so we had to we made a lot of cool fun product but at the same time in the background we were working with philips and with segway at the time to make a humanoid kind of robot that could open the refrigerator door and get you a beer uh, okay. which was a very ambitious and it's, it's insanely complicated thing insanely we still haven't solved now <laughs> exactly we still haven't solved it now but we even, we had like a an alexa style system in the robot and this is the early yeah. 2000s so this is not wow. like you know commonplace stuff yeah it was very cool so they were kind enough to teach me how to take a concept, develop it into an item, and then like produce it. One of my favorite from that was a the, one of the world's first wireless IP cameras uh, called Rovio, which was a, a holonomic robot. So it had a three base robot um, that you could drive around using a web browser from anywhere mm. on the planet. We even three D printed the initial shells with one of the early. Uh, it was a Stratus. It was an early Stratus machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was one of the first things I 3D printed, actually. <laughs> okay, okay. And 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 so, what are some key learnings about this whole process about going from an editor to a product? So yeah, yeah. There's some definite things about like um, one of the biggest things that I learned was that you can't just make a product for yourself. You may think something's very cool, but the market doesn't necessarily think it's cool. So there is something about testing things on the market. You know, when we invented the, the 3D pen, it was out of a need. You know, we were 3D printing a robot dinosaur and it missed the layer. So we were printing legs for a company called Meccano, which is erector sets for the Americans. Um, for, non, for not an erector set thing, but just as a robot dinosaur. And it missed the layer. And we're like, oh, man, I wish you could take the nozzle head off the 3D printer and then use that to weld the pieces together. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And we did. And we're like, oh, sweet. And then we realized that that as just as a standalone repair tool was more interesting than the dinosaur robot that we were working on. And then we just started discovering other things and other uses for it. So having a use case is obviously like very helpful. And having mm-hmm. more use cases or more things that you can do with a device than you can think of often means that I think you have something more interesting. You know, I, if you're struggling to think of where it goes in the world, then then it's maybe you know not so great. <laughs> and also, how do you validate that? I mean, do you because you can't do the same? Yeah, no, 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 no. And actually, it's funny you said because so we we when we developed that first prototype pen, we then spent about a year and a half kind of refining it um, because initially it was just a stepper motor and a hot end and an Arduino. It was kludged together and it kind of worked, but it didn't work great. We refined it, and then what we actually did is we took it around and tried to sell it as a concept because we were an R and D company at the time. It's this funny. After Wowee, right? This is like yeah. This is after Wowee. Sorry. So I left Wowee. I worked for a, a Department of Defense kind of startup thing, doing uh, robots that save people's lives in the battlefield. Um, and then I said, "F that. Let's let's." And I started Wobbleworks with uh, Peter Dilworth. And he and I were working on the robot dinosaur when it made the mistake. And then we ended up inventing the 3D pen as a result mm-hmm. of that. But we then said, let's, let's see if people want this. So we took it around to a lot of the people we were selling these toy concepts to and mm-hmm. other concepts. And we're like, hey, look, it's Harold in the Purple Crayon. It's a, it's a pen that draws in the air. It's a pen that makes things. But and all of them had the yeah. same response. Oh, I don't yeah. get it. <laughs> Really? Like like they didn't get the use case or they didn't get who would buy it or what didn't they get about it? All of it. All of it. They didn't seem to get the use case scenarios. They didn't seem to understand how it was applicable and how it could be used. They didn't understand why it was particularly fun. Um, mm-hmm. even as a, like a toy did you product. Give it, did you have like a working one to give? We had them? a working sample. We were sending this working sample around to people for them yeah. to try, um, to see what they would say and and most and almost all of them there were one or two who were like oh i get it but then it couldn't get further up in the organization um but they don't get how do you keep doing it so how do you keep doing it when that doesn't work out because that could be really discouraging but you hear so many many, you hear so many things like the beatles did like dozens of people rejected the beatles and dozens of people rejected like um uh harry potter series and all this stuff so so when do you know that you you know what's the difference between knowing between that you should just give up and do something else and that this is like this genius idea that uh, that's ahead of its time. Let's say part of its passion. Like if you feel so passionate about something, oftentimes that passion translates to other people. People can feel and read the passion when it's mm-hmm. fake versus when it's real. I don't think you're aware of it necessarily when you're talking mm-hmm. to someone else, but on a subconscious level, you're like, oh, that person really believes in this. Maybe mm-hmm. I should believe in this. It's <laughs> what I think helps to it. But what really did it for us is we were like, you know what? We really believed in this concept of 3D pens. We thought it was a whole, and it is, you know, we thought, oh my God, there's this whole sets of aspects that we're not even aware of. So there's got to be something. And so our conclusion was, let's just test it. And thankfully, the internet and whatnot, we, we threw it up on that Kickstarter platform. And that proved to everyone that there was a market for it and that there was a desire for it. Okay. And so but, all well, of the for, people we pitched to came back yeah. to us. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the first thing, like, okay, if you have this invention, 
Now, why, why did you go to these companies? Why didn't you do it yourself um, initially? Was it was it was it too difficult, too expensive, or do you do you think they had the distribution? What was the reason for for, for going to these other the toy companies in the first place? Yes, the answer to all those questions is yes. It's yeah. it is very expensive. It is a lot of effort and time to make a physical product. Just anything, even if you're three D printing it, it's still difficult. And Having worked for a company previously, I was well aware of all of the requirements to bring a product to market. Yeah. And we decided as an organization that we would really only bring a product to market if we really, truly believed in it. And we're like, this is definitely a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's so much easier to go and license something to someone mm-hmm. and have them kind of their machine deal with it. But the, the danger of licensing like that is that the, an item will get lost. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we licensed six or seven products to half a dozen or a dozen toy companies um, before we did the 3D pen, before we did the 3Doodler. But none of those licensed products ever actually hit market. Wow. Is it that? Yeah. Is it like, is it? Uh, That's I, pretty I, common. Uh, that's common. So out of a hundred products, common. maybe like ten make it, and you'd be happy with that. Maybe like oh, I would be ecstatic if ten out of a hundred made it. Oh Jesus! Yeah. Okay, okay. The yeah. calculus is really different. I would thought that it is there, that 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 would be a lot more refined. Let's say. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's like um, it products stall inside of big companies all the time for a whole number of reasons. Like you always need a champion inside. You need someone that's fighting for it, and you get money for selling the item to a company. Mm-hmm. Like you get an upfront or advancement on royalties, let's say. Um, and then if they don't bring it to market, then they don't bring it to market, but at least you made some money off of it. Um, but w- the real goal is that something comes out to market and then you're making continuing royalties off of it from, yeah, a, okay. from a financial perspective. Um, is, that, is it the model that a lot of these kind of inventing shop people yes. that do, do? Yeah. And then you, you get like a small percentage of them. I know you can't disclose anything, but like a... Yeah, it's small the, the industry or standard. The industry standard is between three and eight percent of of gross or what or what? Uh, yeah, good, good. You know, it depends on how you negotiate it, but of gross or net, depending on okay. which organization and how you negotiate it. Okay. Um, and, then, and then the other thing I was thinking about, like I've heard some horror stories of people with inventions going around, and then somebody just saying, "Oh, thank you very much." No, we're not interested, and then just turning around and doing the invention. Yep. Uh, so how do I insure myself against that? Uh, I mean, you can patent and you can make it complicated enough or hide or obfuscate what the thing is while still like, or how it does the trick or something. Um, but largely it's IP at the end of the day, but you still need money and resources to enforce your IP. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It's like a rich man's game though. Right. I mean, I think at that point, yeah, it kind of, it gets into that weird realm. I, I mean, I had relationships with a lot of the people that I was showing these items to having worked within that industry previously. So they had a little more respect or not respect. That's the wrong. They had a little more like inclination to not just take it and knock it off. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also almost always came with patents in hand saying like, you know, don't make me have to enforce our patent rights and stuff like that. There are retailers you can go to and you get absolutely knocked off right away. Yeah, exactly. This is like yeah. there are certain people that will do that all the time. Yeah. To me, 
it's interesting that the, the patent thing ended up being really important later on for you, right? Because all of a sudden you had so many people trying to copy your pens and, and come after you like that, right? Yeah, and we were able to take advantage of our very broad patents to help the market. We Largely, we wanted to clear out the garbage, if you will. Like There are a lot of people that were making really, really cheap product that didn't work particularly well. Um, and it was bringing the whole kind of industry of 3D pens down as a result. People saying mm-hmm. like, wow, they never work. And so we were able to help remove some of those from the market and clean it up and get rid of some of the products that frankly just didn't work. Um, and it was hurting everyone. And then we mm-hmm. opened it up to some other people and did some licensing deals and things like that mm-hmm. to, help, to help that market in general. Because we were... Pat- any patent tips, by the way? Just like... Yeah, you know, you're a good lawyer is very important for making a good patent. And being broad and going through the process and taking the time to do it right is extremely important. And you really do need to find those innovative steps and those innovations to help do it. And then you, you do that patent and then doing a, a global one afterwards, I think, is completely worth it. If you think you have something that's going to appeal to the global market, but you should be strategic. You know, we probably spend more on lawyers or have spent more on lawyers than most companies of our size, uh, but it's been well worth it for us. So I, I, I encourage patents and I encourage good patents, but a bad patent attorney ugh, is a pain in the ass because they'll try and patent a bad patent and the, the patent authorities won't allow it and they'll just, it'll end up arguing the whole time. It's just not worth the money because it costs you. It costs a lot. I mean, it's twenty to thirty thousand dollars to take a patent in, into reality, and then there are patent fees after that that no one ever realizes when people challenge your patent and when people do that. So you have to be prepared for a, a long-term battle with a patent to support it and sustain it and to you know provide for it, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a child. Yeah, a teenager. It's a I mean, teenager. Okay. <laughs> but but okay okay. So so here you were all of a sudden. Um, your invention is validated. The the internet loves it. The Kickstarter yeah. got you a bunch of money. All of a sudden, everybody's your friend. Yeah, that that to me is a very scary time. It yeah, it's like, everything's going well. Wow, we're popular. Yay! You know, <laughs> <laughs> we we had a bunch of things that we I had, I had learned from my other experiences about supply chains and stuff like that, and not stressing them. And I know now we, everyone loves talking about supply chains because we watched the pandemic really stress supply chains. But we had several major retailers actually approach us right after the Kickstarter saying, come and, and be in our thousands of stores. And our immediate response was, thank you very much. Uh, we'll come back in two years. Mm-hmm. And they were like, no, no, come now. We're like, thank you very much. We'll see you in a year or two. I think I, I was talking to, to a friend of mine just now, like two hours ago, and he yeah. essentially did an expansive thing. I can't tell you what, but, and then he did like a retreat essentially, right? They right. Closed an office, closed the production line, and then they're back at to where they started. And we don't often hear about saying no. And we don't often hear about how important it is to say no, you know? Yeah. We always yeah. hear about, yeah, fight for your idea, go for it and try it, try again. But sometimes you just retreat or sometimes you just tell people no. And embracing that opportunity is sometimes is, is kind of looked at as holy, but a lot of times it isn't. And I love that you guys said no to these really big dollar signs and these really, really big volumes. Yeah, we just we knew we couldn't we couldn't hit it. 
in time. And we were like, no. So instead we went to like the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Mm-hmm. And we went to Brookstones, who was still mm-hmm. around at the time. And they had like 200 stores. And we're like, okay, we can do like two or 300 stores. Mm-hmm. And so in our first year, we did retail in two or 300 stores. We did retail, you know, we sold on our website and we did a couple other locations. But we intentionally restrained ourselves so that we could set up our supply chain so that we could work through the kinks with the devices since they're brand new and so mm-hmm. that we could make sure we understood everything that was going on at the same time you know we mm-hmm. um and because of that we built a pretty stable base and then mm-hmm. we could go to the larger retailers and say okay now we're ready for you and they were receptive to that and some of them were very appreciative of the fact that we didn't put them the buyer Mm-hmm. In a situation where they're like, oh, we have this great new item coming. Oh, just joking. It can't make it in time or something yeah. of that nature. And it well, ruins your You only get one opportunity to go into those retailers. And, and no, if, you, yeah. if you make a but mistake. It's also more complicated than a doll or something, you know? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not a solid piece of plastic. It's got a motor. It's got a chip. Yeah. <laughs> How did you find suppliers? I mean, was it just experience? Was it people you worked with before or? So we found a, a very small factory initially that we worked with mm-hmm. and we kept trying to get them to lower the price. And we're like, but we can find this component for 20% less. And they're like, well, then maybe you should source it. And we're like, fine, we will source it. And then we kept doing that, trying to argue with them over the price until we realized that we were sourcing 60 to 7% of the product ourselves. And we're like, oh, okay, well, I guess now we really have control of our supply chain. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but then as we moved to larger factories, we were able to offload some of that. But the learnings that we got and the connections that we made with, you know, a Kapton heater supplier, for example, like we now have an eight-year relationship with the supplier. And when we move factories, they don't bat an eye and they're perfectly happy to switch over to another factory, but they know that they're going to get paid because we've always paid them on time. And when we've switched them over to factories, we've told factories, you know, pay this supplier on time. Don't, mm-hmm. don't mess around with them. Um, yeah, and yeah. so some of those component suppliers love us as a result. And they're willing to like bend over backwards yeah. when we are like, oh my God, we need 10,000 extra things. Um, mm-hmm. They're able to make it happen. So yeah, relationships are really imp- are surprisingly important. You know, it's not just about going on Alibaba and like finding a place you have to it's, it is important to visit these places as well you never know what you're going to find okay, both okay. good or bad right, do you have do you have a, a thing i have like this thing where it's, it's got to be clean yeah right? it's got to be super clean right but it yeah. can't be too clean and like in right. like certain areas need to be there needs to be some kind of workshop that's really well used or something you know what i mean i have this like kind of really feel this feeling i have do you have that too or is it like a it's, it's a unscientific. Feeling well. uh, yeah. No, no. Yeah. It's also. I think it's. It's less unscientific when we're talking about smaller factories. That I feel like it gets more when you're talking about bigger factories. I mean, there's some great certifications out there, um, like social audits and things of that nature as well, that you can look at, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. But I think there's nothing better than walking the line and mm-hmm. looking at a facility and understanding what's going, making sure. There isn't some room in the back where like kids are making things or something like that. As well as you're right. Like, is it clean, but still used? Because if it's too yeah. clean, is this yeah, just exactly. a show? Yeah, is this exactly. a room that you've set for me? And this is not actually ever used except when no. a client comes by. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I and we spent a lot of bathroom. time at the factories. Yeah, the employee exactly. <laughs> I always go to the employee bathrooms, dude. I'm always like, okay. So first off, if it's hideous, you don't care. You don't care for your people. You can say all sorts of wonderful things about the Fersian industry family or whatever. But if you don't do, right. do take care of the bathroom, you don't care, right? And somebody has to right. clean that bathroom. And I'm always I'm religious about this in restaurants and factories. The, the, <laughs> it's like the bathroom should be clean because somebody needs to do that, and that's not a nice job. That's not fun, right? Uh, exactly. you know, so you have to have somebody do that. It has to happen as a process. And if you can master the process of getting a clean bathroom, then it's wonderful. If you can't, how the hell are you going to assemble my thing, especially if it's a 3D printer or something complicated than that? Exactly. I always go to the employee bathrooms. Not the, like, the ones for, for, for the guests and stuff, the employee one. That's if right. You gotta, you gotta, like, if, if you're in Asia, then you got to see the squat toilets. If you're not yeah, seeing yeah. squat toilets, you're not yeah, seeing exactly. They're not for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, you yeah. know, in different countries, it's different styles or different places. You know, in yeah. the UK, it's mm-hmm. it's the bathroom that's like hidden, if you will. Like it's it's not as easy to find as the one that's for the visitors. Um, yeah. so. anyway, but another thing is legal form, right? So you were like a a company at the time. How do you do this? Do you you know, did you start doing this under the Wobbleworks brand? Did you want to split it off and put it in a different uh, kind of LLC kind of thing? How did you do it legally? Because it's a kind of boring thing, but I think a lot of people gloss over stuff like this. Well, so we initially we were an LLC, uh, Wobbleworks, and then we created this, uh, a brand called Three Doodler. And then once Three Doodler, once we became a company that was actually manufacturing and producing goods, we turned ourselves into an Inc., into a corporation, uh, mm-hmm. into a C Corp. Just because it, it makes for easier mechanisms. And yeah, at some level, this is really boring. But it is also easier to, to operate internationally and stuff like that as when you're incorporated in that nature. And it's easier to do shareholder things and, and, and things of that nature. Because we also, like, we created an employee pool um, where we handed out some equity for initial employees and things of that nature. And those are easier to do when we reincorporated into an income. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's like in the U.S., it's exceedingly easy to set up an LLC. It's one of the easiest countries on the face of the planet to do banking and to set up a company. Frankly, that's why there's so much money laundering out of the United States. But um, <laughs> ignoring that. But, it's, it's, it's like, yeah. Yeah, but, but if you're uh, I scout companies for investors, right? And one of the things that really trips people up, they don't realize it, is that if they're the ownership structure of the company is messy or if there's, yeah. we see some shareholder who only who has a really weird name uh, or uh, he wouldn't expect to be there <laughs> or something like that. Or, And this really trips people up. And a lot of times people don't invest because of these things or you know, are, are some simple things like, for example, you had an employee who was really key in the invention stage, but you got an argument, she left, right? Now right. what, right? And and people don't solve that, and they try to get investors, and it becomes it becomes a reason why a lot of investors bounce off because like the the structure is, is messy, or yeah, there, there just is a lot of things that are not not done really well. I think. Well, if you don't pay attention to those details, then it means mm-hmm. you're not paying attention to other major details. Yeah, yeah this is pretty thing, big. The details. restaurant bathroom thing. <laughs> yeah, exa- thing. exactly. It is exactly like the restaurant bathroom thing. So yeah. it's uh, a yeah. 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 Okay, okay. And then and then so what did you but then okay, so there's like all this calculus in there because like you guys are kind of hardware experienced. You yeah. know, for example, that the like you know, molds sometimes don't fit. Um do, do you do, were you really spending a lot of time making very protective, very cast iron contracts, or were you letting like the the, the, the relationship lead the way, or were we doing a lot of due diligence? How did this go right for you? Because 
a lot of people just like, you know, they end up making, doing tooling, the tooling's wrong, and then all of a sudden it grinds to a halt, right? So yeah, for stuff like, for the first version especially, um, I just basically moved to the factory uh, for about six months and was in, was physically in the factory three to four times a week sitting there trying to solve problems. Mm -hmm. Um, My tooling supplier is someone that I've actually known from the days that I was working at Wowie um, and was very willing to work with us. So the days that I wasn't, for example, at the factory, I was at the tooling facility um, because we kept the, the, we kept them separate so that, for example, we could move factories more easily. If you keep your tooling in a different location, uh, your injection tooling in a different location than the actual factory, you can, you can, you're more easy to pivot, if you will. Uh, so because of our relationship with suppliers, yes, some of them, anyone we didn't know particularly well, we had more rock hard things. We set up another company as well um, out of Hong Kong that was a subsidiary that didn't have our names on it, that didn't have Wobbleworks or 3Doodler on it so that we could do supplier deals without them understanding where it was going and what it was for. And why is that important? I don't, you know, at the time, because we were very paranoid about someone knocking us off in the early stages that we wanted to try and prevent that as much as possible. And we we were, you know, it's six months till we, eh. and yeah, people still ended up knocking us off, but it, it took them longer to get there because they couldn't just call up all the people that we were using. Okay, and okay. people that we were using didn't even necessarily know what we were doing. You know, an NTC yeah. is an NTC. Yeah. Like, yeah. What do you care what I'm using it for? A yeah. motor, a DC motor is a DC motor. Yes, I need it to do this load and I need it to have, you know, this gear ratio. But beyond that, I don't need you to know what I'm doing. Um, okay. Kind of stuff. Which on the one hand may have been overly paranoid, but it did... I think it helped to prevent that. But, you know, as time went on, we got more lax because we weren't trying to protect a secret anymore. Yeah. And I love the fact that you kind of lived in the factory and you were there. I think yeah. that's the only way to do this. It, it is the only I, way to do it. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I've, there was once, I'm going to like obfuscate this a little bit, but there was a company I was like kind of looking into and they outsourced the, the, the production of the 3D printers to another uh, country. And I'm like, mm-hmm. And who's there? I just asked who's there. Kind of a, a kind of more of a personal interest question, like kind of like a human interest kind of thing. And they were they were like, "Oh no, we visit them." And I'm like, "But you don't have anyone of yours at the factory." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, mentally check out of this relationship because this is yeah. not going to work." And I think I think the funny thing is it didn't work, right? But but just that already taught me that this is going to fail. Whatever, like you know however good they were on design or design for manufacturing or God knows what else they were doing. Um, this would never work if they didn't, at least in the initial stages, just live, eat and breathe and then share the culture of this factory and work with them and get everything dialed in, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I used to, I used to sit on the line when we started full production, I would watch workers and workers that I would like, Oh, there's a more efficient way to do this. I would ask, you know, the, the manager to like sit with me for a moment and like walk over and I'd ask a worker, please stand up from your station. Um, mm-hmm. And then I would sit down and I would do like six or seven pens and show them like, look, if you do it like this, you know, this hand motion, you're going to cut 20% of your time away right away and mm-hmm. look at how much faster and more reliable this component will be. Um, so obsessing about that stuff in the early stages, it's, it's really important. And being able to look at 
those mm -hmm. production lines and understand what's happening at each station mm -hmm. is equally important because yeah, the factory will set up guidelines and they'll set up, you know, tests and stuff like that, but you should examine all those tests mm -hmm. and then check that they're actually valid and worth it and that they work the way that you expect them to at the end yeah, of the day. Because right. it was first, like the Chinese manufacturing experience first shocked me because it was just like, it seemed like kind of like a little bit of casual manufacturing kind of thing. Like the one factory <laughs> would do like three different things and people would just stroll around and walk around or something. And some people didn't have uniforms or safety shoes. Yeah. And I was like, and I was just like, what, what is going on? I was just really overwhelmed by it. And I, and I noticed too late, of course, that in Europe, the stuff we do do is like satellite parts or like, I don't know, luxury goods or stuff like that. And of right. course, it's then you, have, you can afford to do a lot more in terms of procedures and uniform and gold knows what else and clean room and whatever. I mean, you have to. So it, right. it just really shocked me. I, I was really kind of really lost in that environment the first time I did tours and went over there. <laughs> Yeah. And, 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 uh, but I, I think I like that kind of commitment. I, I don't know, like sitting on the line must also do something to that factory owner and the, 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 the employees and stuff, you know? Yeah, must, I think it does. I think it shows you the fact that you care enough about the product that they're making for you. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah, yeah. That they should care too. You know, um, eventually, like, can you eat the normal Chinese food eventually? Or like, because I've, I've done that. Oh, I always ate the, I always ate the factory food. Yeah. Yeah? I had no oh, issue nice. with eating from the cantina. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, nice, dude. That's yeah. Cool. Oh, I've never worked with. I'm always like, no. just bring me what's in the cantina. It's fine. Um, nice, <laughs> yeah. no, because I, I'm like the, just the, the guest, so then you get all the weird stuff. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, exactly. Is it actually a bird nest? Or like, is it not a bird's nest? It just looks like a bird's nest. I don't no, know. it's a bird's nest. It's, it's, it's actually a bird's nest. Oh, it's cool. actually a bird's nest. It's good for your skin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, you know, like the, yeah, and then you get this, this, oh God, this, what is this alcoholic beverage thing called? Mai Tai? Oh, Muay Thai. Oh, uh, Muay Thai. Uh, or, or, no, um, no, Muay Thai is the, the ball kickboxing. Sorry, sorry, not Muay Thai. Um, um, Muay Thai? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, no, it's a, it's a rice wine. Again. Anyway, uh, that's it. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, it's like paint thinner. Oh, wow. I don't know. Yeah. And I everyone know. claims that they have stuff that's from before the, the revolution. Because yeah. everyone buried a bottle at some point. <laughs> maybe. So maybe. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. And, um, but okay. I think that was, uh, I think, yeah, definitely the, the, the chief learning I was like is be there and, and be accessible or have a company that does it, right? There's these sourcing consultants. Yeah. There are sourcing companies and you have to trust them. But yeah, you, you need a third party or someone has to be there from outside of the factory to check on things. And, and how um, about, how about QA, right? How do you do a QA process for something you've kind of just invented? How do you figure out how that works? Or how do you develop the parameters for that? <laughs> you sit there and test it. Yeah. <laughs> you sit on the line, you're like... It's, uh, it's not just sitting on the line, but you know, you, you make a... a you're in a pre-production run, you'll make like 100 units, right? And you assign 10 of those units for like life testing. So someone's sitting there just shoving... for In our case, for the three doodler, you're just shoving plastic through this pen constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're taking into account like, oh, but you know, you, every six hours it should rest for 30 minutes because right. after six hours, someone should put the thing down and like give it a, a rest, um, and things like that. And you try to think of the most stringent circumstances, but you also discover things along the way. Like we figured out that PLA is more, um, damaging on a gear mechanism than ABS because it, it's whilst it's more brittle and it's not quote unquote as strong, mm -hmm. it puts more pressure on that, on that system when the two gears meet. 
to to urge it oh, forward. Oh, the toughness. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The okay, toughness of yeah. that. So, as a result, we ended up making PLA the testing standard. If it can survive you know, 200 hours of PLA, I'm not worried about ABS anymore. And you did like 200 hours, like what, per pen or per what? Per pen. Really? The yeah. first 100? Uh, yeah. Oh, it was the wow. lifetime test. We, we, life te- we still life test all of our pens to, to pretty harsh standards. Like we, that? Yeah, we expect users to use them. I mean, they're, they're meant to be used. We have artists that use them on a daily basis for six to eight hours a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's part of their livelihood. So we discovered pretty early on that, that we had users like that. So we started making for those types of users. Okay, okay. And then, okay, the, the next thing is we're looking at more of the globalization of your thing. Now, now you are talking to big retailers. You are talking. Yeah. How do you keep, I understand how you could have a Kickstarter home run, but how do you keep it going? Like, how do you professionalize without getting boring? How do you keep up the, the, the marketing? You know, how do you keep it going? One second. I mean, we did innovation on, you know, reducing sizes of the devices and making them more effective and less prone to having jams like traditional 3D printers were having. Um, And then the other thing that we did is that we introduced, uh, we separated it out into three categories. We made a kid's version that's kid safe that uses a, a, like a PCL variant. So it's a low temperature device. Um, and it's compostable and we made a general use pen, which is the three doodler create, Mm -hmm. for example. Uh, and we made a professional pen, a three doodler pro where you can set temperature and put like bronze and copper and nylon and all those variant materials into it. Um, and then started pushing for each of those to go into different markets, uh, to suit different purposes. And then at the same time, we had a lot of educators come and approach us and say like, oh my God, do you know what you've done for education? We're like, no, (laughs) please tell us what we've done for education. Uh, And it turned out that there were a lot of educators that wanted it as well. So we started an educational program where we would bundle, you know, six and 12 units together to create an an EDU offering. Um, And now like, so doing all those things at the same time as, you know, marketing efforts to like mm-hmm. refresh things has resulted in, uh, I mean, we've over 4 million pens sold to date. Wow. So yeah. And, yeah, yeah, that's good. 4 million is amazing, dude. That's like yeah. the reality is sold 5.5 million 3d printers. Right. So, yeah, uh, so but there, there's like maybe one other one between you and the crowd. <laughs> 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 I ain't had friends. And then, the, then, then, the, you know, then there's not a lot, uh, besides that, let's say, you know, um, so that's, that's amazing, dude. Like, um, but also, wait a minute. So also, I think it's interesting that you guys never, uh, did you take on extra money? Did you, nope. did you no investors, nothing, nothing, nothing. It was completely bootstrapped from the Kickstarter project. Okay, so in the, I get at the beginning, but at one point in the middle, it must have been kind of really tempting to to kind of shell out of it or to. You we know, looked at up. it. We even tried to, you know, but we ran into that same problem that we had in the beginning, where people are like, "I don't get no, it. I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. I get that you make money. I don't understand yeah. how you make money." And it's like, okay, okay. Um, and and because the the crash of the three D print market, you know, that whole phase where with the sellout of uh, MakerBot and all that with Stratus, and it's an adjustment. It's all right. Sorry, the it's correction, <laughs> the correction in the market um, yeah. was when we were like, oh, maybe we should take on like an investor and get the help and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. 
Uh, but everyone was like, I'm not touching 3D printers or yeah, adjacent sure. to 3D printers. You know, uh, I don't care what, what it is. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't experience a crash or a downturn. Mm-hmm. In fact, we experienced an upturn from all that because they're a price point and that we're more approachable as a, as a consumer product. Because uh, at the end of the day, I love my 3D printer. It's still not ready to be in a Best no. Buy, for example, or a Target mm-hmm. or something like that. It's still too far out. No, no, um, no way. Yeah. But yeah, so when, anytime we looked, everything is like, gone mm-hmm. uh, to hell in a handbag if you will <laughs> and how do you like so at one point you you i think a lot of like founder inventor people have a like, difficult time like delegating and hiring people to take over things they used to do how do you kind of like find peace in that and how do you find if you know, find the right people i mean it is a challenge definitely to find the right people and we've been very fortunate to have um a great group of people that we work with and a great staff and you know we have a very low attrition rate as well as a company you know we have employees that have been around for 10 12 years um Mm -hmm. which i you know is great um and we even have employees that have left at one point or another and then come back i think it's offering a unique environment and allowing people to have a voice but it's also you're right letting go and realizing that you Let's say as an inventor or as a creator, you're good at that, but you're not necessarily good at, say, sales or marketing or something like that. And you need to let someone else do it. Um, And you can advise and you can certainly poke, but you should still let someone just get on with their job. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. And do yeah. you try to make a culture or does that kind of just kind of happen or are you really all about that or? Both. I mean, we made like conscious decisions and unconscious decisions and not making a decision is also making a decision. But like, for example, we immediately said, we're a dog company. And I know that's a small small little thing, but that meant that any office that we have has to allow dogs. Um, And that was actually more of an issue. Like when we had, we still do have an office like in Hong Kong. um, Mm -hmm. And it's not as culturally acceptable to have like a dog just wander into your office. But you know, we worked through it. Um, so. <laughs> and, and, and is it tempting to step aside completely? Was it because it could have been? You could have done something it completely different. Although you know, it's the new innovative stuff that we're doing that I find to be fun and exciting. Like you know, we have new items that are really okay. cool that I'm excited about. Like what? Like what? So actually, we're just launching. Um, we launched on the 23rd of May uh, a new Kickstarter campaign for the Chef Doodler. Which is a sugar-based 3D pen. Okay, so I can draw so chefs with it. You can no, like as in a, <laughs> as in you're a cooking chef. Very cute. Okay. <laughs> you can you can yeah. you can use it to make um, sugar artwork, uh, or okay. you can use it to weld things together with sugar. So like okay. graham crackers and cookies and stuff like that. You can use it to glue them together, if you will, using uh-huh. sugar or isomalt um okay, as okay. your substrate and then or you can make something completely out of it or draw in the air or you know i, I made an eiffel tower and some flowers that can yeah. be put on a cake for example so you can oh, make very okay. intricate decorations and designs yeah. um, without having to like boil a pot of sugar and then yeah. like try and drip it and and temper it and check it mm-hmm. all the time it's just a lovely little device it's got a little cartridge that you load these sugar pellets into and then you you can start drawing. In fact, it's low enough temperature. I mean, that you can extrude it and like start touching it with your finger. I wouldn't extrude it onto your finger. It's mm-hmm. still hot sugar. 
but it's it's certainly safer than a traditional method. Like traditionally, you would you could take a double boiler, or you could just take a pot and then throw sugar or isomalt into the pot and melt it, and then you have to like pour it or drip it out or do whatever you will. So to make like an Eiffel Tower using a drip method, it's like a 15 to 16 hour process. It's a very long and labor intensive process. And normally you do a mold, right? And you just like spread things like a balloon or something. You you could also do a mold. Exactly. Yeah. Or you do some of those things, but with these pens, with the chef doodler, you can draw that Eiffel tower and it takes around 45 minutes to an hour and a half. Okay. Okay. So you're talking as a cook or someone that's doing kind of sugar artwork for desserts or something, you're talking about significant time saving. Okay. And do you see it like as a, that that would this is like a pastry chef thing? Do you see? I think it's a pastry chef thing. I think it's an at home thing. You know, if you're mm-hmm. a, a parent that doesn't have a ton of time, you know, I made a, a jeep out of graham crackers in around fifteen to twenty minutes, yeah. and you could easily go buy a sheet cake, make a jeep out of graham crackers, Twizzlers, and, and Oreos, and some gummy bears for headlights, mm-hmm. for example, and then put that on a sheet cake and make a unique cake for your kid's birthday that they would have fun. Or you can have, you know, you know that they like something interesting and different. You can make that um, relatively low cost and easily mm-hmm. um, and still feel like you're making this unique offering for, for your child or for your friends or whoever um, and impressing them without, you know, going and spending a ton at like Dominic Ansel or some amazing bakery like that. I think it'd be amazing, like, uh, to go to like a kids' party where the kids make, you know, all these creations that they then get to eat later. I think that'd be super yeah. fun. Yeah, I mean, that would also be super fun. Um, yeah, I mean, you can. Yeah, I, I also see it as like, you know, in a hotel at the end of the buffet line at dinner, and you want a mm-hmm. cupcake. You know, what, at the beginning of the line, they could say, you know, what's your name, and then you could say, you know, I'm I'm Joris. And then by the time you get to the end, like, Joyce, we have made a cupcake for you. And they sure. have your name sticking out of the top of the cupcake, for example. Yeah, or the name of the company or the name or of the Or the name of the company, or exactly. Or if you're on a cruise ship. Or... So there are ranging applications from it's a fun thing to have in the, the household mm-hmm. kitchen to the semi-professional um, who is looking to up their work and, and demonstrate by doing more, all mm-hmm. the way to professional pastry chefs. Like, you know, I don't know if you know what a, a Krokenbush is. No. No, it's a tower of puff pastries. That's a French delicacy. Oh, yeah. Um, it takes six to eight hours to make it. To, you, know, you gotta make shoe, you gotta make the pastries, you gotta fill the pastries. And then you have to dip each pastry into melted sugar or isomalt and then stick them together. And this process is an absolute pain in the butt. Uh, but using the chef doodler, you can just add a dab of material onto each of these puff pastries and then stick them together. And then you're not, again, you're not like looking at your boiling pot with a thermometer to make sure that you're at the right temperature zone constantly and trying to futz around with it. So it, again, it'll cut a huge amount of time. So it's, uh, it's a device that really opens up the whole world of working with sugar and food yeah. in a food world and a food sense. That thing is actually in this documentary called Kings of Pastry, which is really amazing, by the way. Yeah. It's really old school documentary uh, now, I think. But that's cool. Dude. And okay, so you're hoping to launch that on Kickstarter again? So I'm la- it's uh, launched on Kickstarter. And then, and, and do you have any kind of misgivings in doing it again? Cause like last time was super successful, but maybe, you know, are you, are you nervous about this? Are you really confident or I, you know, it's, 
what we got from the Kickstarter community initially was a was quite literally a community mm-hmm. um, by pre-selling it on that platform or by bringing it out as well as the ability to bootstrap it. And in this case, we again we're going out to it because we think that we can get a we can expose it to these people and get some really great ideas and feedback, and that we can help to create this community and make a brand new category, if you will, that's going to be loved. So I'm not I we see Kickstarter as a wonderful tool. And as a great proof of concept, if you will, to make sure that people do want this. I think people want it. I'm very confident in people's desire to have this device for a whole bunch of reasons. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding. So when we put it out there, we'll see. And that's part of the beauty and advantage of it. If if it were to not do great on Kickstarter, then we're like, okay, then I guess people don't want this. But I think it's going to do fabulous. So. We'll see. Okay. Well, super good. Look, I'm sure I'm going to, I'm going to buy one. So I'll, I'll get one. You've got, well, one, already. You. got one, <laughs> one, one already. Maybe two, maybe two. Uh, and uh, so, um, yeah, thanks Max for, for this, looking at a little bit more. No, of your yeah. Uh, bringing things to market, all that kind of stuff. I thought it'd be really cool for people to kind of talk about stuff that we don't really talk about uh, a lot. So, uh, but I think are really, really important. So thanks so much for this one. No, my pleasure to to chat with everyone. I hope all of our listeners uh, enjoy uh, this episode. Definitely, definitely. And thank you for listening. My name is Joris Peels. We were here to hear a little bit more of Maxwell Dog's story, uh, the three doodler story. And uh, well, thank you so much for being here for that. And uh, you have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.